Welcome to episode number five. Um, really great to be back so soon after our last podcast with Paige Rice. Um, and we're looking forward to this podcast today, particularly because it um, introduces some members of the Science and Dance team who've been really influential in building a network of physiotherapists, sports practitioners, dance scientists, and I'm really pleased today that um, we'll be introducing Jody uh, Coma and Chris Taggart. They're fantastic pra- practitioners. Chris is a strength and conditioning coach and Jody is a sports therapist and they have been so well received at events in the past and so I really hope you enjoy listening to them today as we uh, embark on a bit of a question and answer session uh, with the science and dance team. As ever, leave your comments and feedback below and let me know what you think. Thanks very much. So episode number five of the Science and Dance podcast sees my, myself sitting down finally with Jody, uh, who's our sports therapist at Care Stance, and Chris Taggart, who uh, has kind of not been around for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, Chris spent uh, a good three months with the Care Stance back in 2017. I think it was 2017. It was that oh, long yeah, ago. Yeah, on his journey through strength and conditioning masters which has led him to this point and since then he's kind of uh, been a been a, a strong consulting brain of mine uh, we've batted some ideas backwards and forwards over the past two years but we've not seen much of each other and then Jody's been here week in week out um, with our sports therapy clinic on a Saturday so what we thought we'd do is sit down in kind of a round table discussion and simply just fire questions backwards and forwards between each other about what we've seen over the last two years in dance science and um, attack it from different perspectives. So Chris, who will tell you a bit more, well, he'll tell you a bit more about himself in a second, um, has come at this from seeing dance probably for what it is and from a different uh, sort of a lay terms perspective and just looking at it from the outside in and then getting involved. And then Jody, uh, a bit like myself, has been immersed in dance for a lot, lot longer. Um, so just to give you a little bit of background, Chris Taggart, studied a sports medicine and nutrition degree at Cardiff University. Is that correct? Yeah, Cardiff Met. Cardiff Met, sorry about that. Cardiff Met, uh, and then continued your strength and conditioning masters there mm-hmm. over the period of three years. So we're getting around to that like dissertation point and going to collect some data on the students here at KS. And then Jodie studied a sports therapy degree, but where was that? Edge Hill University. Uh, Edge Hill. And then now she's um, onto a performing arts uh, medicine Degree is that, mm-hmm. is that right? Yeah. Performing arts medicine degree at UCL, so that's really interesting. And you're getting around to data collection next year. Yours, yeah. yours masters over two years, wasn't it? Yeah, two, yeah, years, two years. So, Chris, first question is to you. What's your interest in dance from from a sports medicine nutrition and strength and conditioning point of view? Because mm-hmm. you've not been a dancer yourself, no. although there is a hilarious video <laughs> of Izzy Ayers trying to teach you how to dance. Yeah. Do tell us what fascinates you about ballet, dance, contemporary, whatever it is, and, mm-hmm. and the link between that and strength and conditioning for you. It's, it's just the dancer's ability to be superhuman and how they're kind of grown up with it and they're, they're taught how to move to the end range and their maximal flexibility for years and years and years. And it's not 
taught at a later stage for other sports like rugby, football and stuff like that. And it's just their fine control with that stuff and how difficult that is to teach to a normal person. Mm. And it's that area and it really broadened my aspect of, of functional anatomy is for what it really is because we're taught in strength conditioning and physiology and stuff essentially what I'm now thinking of is dead person anatomy where everything this muscle does this thing and it's only that muscle yeah but you see it in ballet in class and it's it's the whole chain from the it's, like, it's, like, it's like things in isolation isn't it you know yeah, yeah. I, I think that's what is so fascinating and we can take sports science and strength and conditioning principles um, that are like the, the traditional higher, faster, stronger stuff. Yeah, and yeah. that's great. You know what I mean? But it is this element of fine control and quality of movement that dancers strive for. And do you, so do you feel like the traditional realm of strength and conditioning, apart from making them more robust by doing the squats and the traditional mm-hmm. lifts and things like that and jumping and landing, in terms of performance enhancement, do you see the fine, enhancing fine control as being the key to their performance enhancement? Do you think that's an interest at all? I think so, because from any type of sport, athlete, if they haven't done any type of strength training, you go with it, that's a, a general aspect, and just improving their movement quality will improve their performance. In dance and ballet, because their movement quality is so good already, it's utilising the strength at their end ranges, and that's, that's that fine control that will improve performance. And so for something like a turnout, it's, although they have the flexibility to do it, it's using the strength and intention to improve that quality at that end range, which a normal athlete just, just has no comprehension. And just coaching them through a squat, a hinge, is going to make them better. But in a dancing, they already have perfect squats, hinges. It's then you have to think, okay, how can I make this better in performance? And it's utilising their... That super, super fine control and isolation. And doing it over and over again. Over so much volume. And, it's and incredible. And it, I always find it funny that I can get any exercise, a new exercise I teach to a dancer, they can do like a good two or three reps. And I'm like, oh, well, you can do this. And then you get them to do maybe 10, 12, yeah. 13, 14, yeah. 15, and it breaks down, even in the fine control stuff. So these overuse I would find personally these overuse injuries come from yeah aesthetically they can do movement really really well off the bat then the muscular endurance or that repeated fine control ability may start to break down and we start to get these overuse type Mm. issues which kind of brings me to my next point and next question which I'm going to fire towards Jody which is you spent the last year working brilliantly uh, alongside the students here at Care Dance and myself, and it's been fantastic. Um, what has been uh, an eye-opener for you? Or what has been one thing or a couple of themes that have run through every single scenario that you've had, whether that's uh, physical, whether that's uh, social, whether that's psychosocial, or any factors that you might have seen in clinic that kind of themes that run with students when it, they come in to see you because I, I guess I'm not not all of them have come to see you with necessarily an issue mm. some of them come to see you regularly I think I can think of the two people that have yeah. been to see you week in week out for a period of time because yeah. they liked it yeah um so themes that kind of run through anatomically more for uh, ballet dancers here um have been backs and hips and also feet um and I would probably put that down to um, 
some load management, maybe their timetable has been um, increased or they've had like a particular role in the tour maybe. Mm. Um, and it's kind of just presented in such a way that they've turned maybe too much on one side and it's just presenting in repetition of movement pattern that maybe they're struggling to control a little bit and that's more of what I'm seeing through like the overuse type injuries. Does that, does that, I mean, that kind of, again, we, we always, we come on these, as hear people interviewed about Down syndrome all the time, we've got the statistics that show most of the, the high percentage are overuse yeah. of that. A lot of them are at the foot and ankle, mm-hmm. a high percentage there. And then kind of the knee and the hip are the next two, maybe some at the lower back, yeah. but you've not meant, you didn't even mention the knee there. Is not- that, is that because you don't see a lot of it or is that just because the first thing that sprung into your head anecdotally yeah. was feet ankle and then lower lower back and hip yeah normally the knee is a knock-on effect of the foot or the ankle or the hip and lower back and pelvis potentially not working properly there's a lot of um research that says about the effect of um turnout if they're using that inadequately that it affects that knee so a lot of the time if they are struggling around that hip and back region and they don't get that seen to potentially, then the knee becomes a bit of a knock-on issue. Interesting. Because, I mean, we were under the illusion many, many, I guess the research suggested and dance teachers suggested that years ago that a lot of rotation came from the hip. And I think now that we've done sort of 3D analysis, 2D analysis, and, um, you know, looking at the contributing factors to turnout, we can certainly say there's a lot more going on at the ankle and the knee Definitely, yeah. than we originally thought. Yes. Um so you know that this this illusion of one hundred and eighty degree turnout is um, is is we're fooled a little bit to thinking that oh that somebody's flat turned out of the hip, that's great. Yeah. It's not necessarily the case, and that's just interesting. I didn't uh, you know you've joined the dots there yeah. quite quite well. Um, interestingly though, you know you mentioned change in in, in timetable and change in workload. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that's just? lack of preparation necessarily or do you think that is just the demand each day can change and what what that person can cope with each day can change massively as well yeah. you know they've just it could be just one day where they've overloaded themselves or do you see it more over a period of time I think, think the where that student is at in their training i think massively changes as well so like a first year for example mm. they will probably struggle more with load management because they want to um not sure what's the wrong word what's the word do everything do, yeah, yeah they want to perform for their teacher they want to show what they can do mm. so they probably try harder so their effort might be higher in the classes so therefore they might be pushing them themselves through a, a movement that maybe if they haven't got that foundation already built there that finer movement control they might struggle with compared to a third year who's had two years previous of training, who knows that limit um, of where they are. Um, so I, I don't think it's preparation as such, um, but you probably could link in warm-ups as well with that, um, an appropriate warm-up and bar, that kind of thing. Um, and I've forgotten your second question. Yeah, but the, so the other, the other point to that was, you know, where you've seen these, these trends in, in load management and such, do, do you find that the students... Um, know what they're talking about when it comes to how much they've done do you find they're able to communicate well with you 
in terms of, you know what, I actually feel like I've done a lot this week or I don't know where this has come from. Do you, do you feel like they sort of try and self-diagnose and give you quite a lot of information or are you... Yes. Interesting. Dance, I think, especially the students here, they know... Every dancer knows their body better than anyone. Everyone knows mm. their own bodies better than anyone. But I think dancers specifically, they know what feels right and they know what doesn't quite feel right. So when they come in to see me... It's, it's not hard getting information from them, but certain information might crop up when they're on the table. But mm. most of the time, they can say, this is what I've been doing this week, and this is what, how I've managed my time, and I can kind of piece together what's kind of going on. Yeah, I think, I think workload comes into um, uh, the, the conversation a lot, and I know there's colleagues, um, certainly in the strength and conditioning world, that would probably say all injuries are a question of load. And yeah, load volume. I'd, I'd say more it's, it's more to do with load and this overuse. Thing. Overuse, yeah. yeah. And, and I think we can all agree on that. Uh, um, and even some acute things that occurred, like ankle sprains, maybe, maybe, and I'm stressing maybe, maybe. Um, a culmination of some cognitive fatigue, some inadequate technique as a result of fatigue, and yeah. therefore breakdown in the way that, in which they normally do something, and that's resulted in a missed foot, a slip, mm-hmm. a fall, what have you. So I think that we can hypothesise along those lines that it's all a question of keeping the dancer as fresh and as ready as possible. And as, you know, how much sort of freshness, readiness stuff have you come across, Chris? Is, is, is that it's a hot topic, I guess, at the yeah, moment? Yeah, it is, because you know, they, they do like to be honest, but they're, they're trained to look good and to not look tired. So when you ask them, how are you feeling? They're like, yeah, I'm okay. I'm all fine. And like, are you fine really? And like, okay, no, I'm a bit tired. And you can, you can see in the mm-hmm. dance when they start doing their little kind of compensations to get them out of this, this fatigue or shaking it out or just rubbing certain stuff. And that's what I really like to look at. It's like, yeah. okay, because you're performing so, so well. But what are you doing when you're not performing? Where are you going to? Where, and you can, that's where, you, where I find my clues because mm-hmm. they're so good at hiding it. And saying, "Oh no, it's all part of dance. This is what I'm worried it's about." Really, it's really, really interesting you say that. I mean, it's <laughs> just the nature of it. This is 29, a ritual. Twenty nineteen paper just released, and I'll put the link in the description for people that want to read this paper. Is that I think it was two thirds of dancers over a period of time will dance through pain. Yeah. So they'll say that they've got pain, and then continue yeah. their activity levels through it. And I'm certainly under the impression over the past years, a few years, especially with influences from sport, look, like if we sort these issues early on and we mitigate that and we get rid of the pain or we find the source of the issue or we, we load up and we make something stronger, something might not become chronic. And I'm no expert in terms of pain science at all, but I, I understand the fact that, you know, even without a significant a particular pathology going on, mm somebody could be in pain, you know, they go for a for an MRI scan and there might be, it might be all clear, there might be nothing there, but then nevertheless, they're still in pain. So even though culturally dancers are used to dancing in pain, they're just saying, get on with it mm-hmm. kind of thing. I, I, I really, I mean, look at the way that dance has changed in the past 30 years and what people are asking of their bodies. We can no longer expect people, I don't feel, to just get on with it. Yeah. You know, people are lifting the legs higher, jumping higher as a result of pushing the body further and further and further. And therefore, the culture of dancing through pain is 
I believe needs to needs to go. It's worrying. Uh, it yeah. is worrying. Yeah, yeah. It is worrying. And given the amount of we the people, how young people are pushed, um, to do these difficult things that the rest of them in dance, um, I think it, building that um advisory process to say, hey, I'm in pain. You know what? I need to just go and see somebody or, um, I need to get this sorted now so that it's not a bigger problem later on. Mm. And I think. The, the historical, and I was speaking to some teachers yesterday evening, the historic who used to be professionals, they, historically, you know, they were worried about losing their job. If they were in pain and they had to go on and dance, they were worried about losing their job. There was a practical aspect to them dancing through pain. You know, there was a period of time, if they were off for a certain amount of time, they'd have the contracts apt. You know, th- these are worries. So my question then bounces back over to Jody and is like, when people come into the clinic and not necessarily just here, it, are you seeing a shortened amount of time now between feeling pain and coming to see you? Or are people still coming to see you and saying, I've had this pain for a month? Um, I'd say it's a bit of a mixture. Um, some, like you say, typically dancers go along that route of, oh, I feel pain, I'll just carry on going through it, and to the point where they they feel or see a, a drop in their performance. And then that's, that's some of the population that I see. But then others, they'll because they might have been through a previous injury in the past, they, they understand and they know that if they come in and get it sorted quicker um, or sooner when they feel pain, it helps them in the long run. So I'd say there is definitely a divide. Um, just from people I've seen like through clinic, I think commercial dancers are probably the, the first. They'll come in the latest possible because they'll try and just carry on really various things yeah um compared to actually compared to the more ballet population that i see actually um this is just obviously what i've seen in clinic but um because i think with with commercial um the the type of commercial dancers that i work with their their whole body moves and they find better compensation patterns to not go into that pain Mm. because of the way the like the technique or the move is whereas with ballet it's very strict it's more yeah more strict more set positions so they would feel the pain more often um and especially certain like exercises or bar work repertoire that they they have to go into that pain so they're more likely to come in quicker because it's affecting them like at that specific movement patterns that they need over and over again whereas you find that the more free movement styles like yeah. commercial maybe maybe even some jazz and contemporary could probably work around it you yeah. know that's i you know i haven't thought of that i love that mm. i really really wanted somebody to look into that now i'm going to put it out there and say you know <laughs> what what are the statistics out there that, that look at the compensation patterns of commercial dancers and this might have already been done if somebody if somebody knows that this has already been done please let me know um but you know what are the differences between genre in terms of reporting pain yep. and i think that's you might be alluding to something that is statistically mm. out there already and i think that's um certainly of interest now the other aspect of that whole pain t- chat i guess is not everywhere is as fortunate to have not every country is as fortunate to have the amount of uh, influence from exercise science and physiotherapy and sports medicine that the UK has um, for dancers. So, Chris, you had a trip over to the Czech Republic. You went to the uh, a company in Ostrava there through a mutual connection of ours. Um, 
but you you know you went and you spoke to a load of dancers there. What was what was the uptake on your chat? Because what, what did you go over there and do, first of all? Let's set the scene. You sure. went over to Estrava and you spent how long there? So I was there for what, four days in the end. Um, I gave a lecture on, so it was about 40 dances there, I think, maybe less. Somewhere between 20 and 40 dances, I can't remember now. And I gave them lectures on, on strength conditioning and pain performance and nutrition as well. And they, they came in with their own will for that. And... They were very, very interested in in all of it, really. Mainly the nutrition, because they were so... They were ignorant of it, but they were aware of it, which is the good thing. They were they didn't know what they should be eating and when. And in terms of the strength as well, they were less interested, because I think it was just from where they were grew up, where they grew up, because not many of them were English. So they weren't brought up with this. Gets the gym to get stronger. You don't have to worry about bulking up. And in terms of the pain and performance, they, they just kind of saw me as a physio or as a, a really? just a normal practitioner. So so never even though you brand your you obviously brand yourself as a, as a yeah. movement guy, yeah, yeah, you know yeah. you, that's you work in the gym all the time with people. Yeah. There was still that disparity between mm-hmm. this person's talking about exercise and yeah pain and everything. Yet I don't know what to make of it. Yeah, it's, there's really a lot of confusion for them, but. You know, I asked them, what, what pain are you in? Where is it? Injury history and that type of stuff. And they really, they just didn't like talking about it. And these are professional dancers now. They were quite young. But they really didn't like me asking them about their pain. They, they'd be honest and be, okay, I'm a bit stiff here. I foam roll here. I, I do this to make this better. When I ask, okay, why do you need to do that? They, they just, they don't want to answer. Like, oh, it's just, it's just part of the ballet. This is, this is just a ballet pain. Like, that's not a thing. This is, this is pain. You're having a pain here. I need to know why so I can treat it and get you better. But, yeah, they, they were confused by it and they think, no, I just have to work through it. And when, when I look at it and try and explain to them what's happening and why they're in pain, say if they have knee pain, I'm like, okay, well, let's see what your turn is like. Let's see what ankle mobility you have or hip mobility and try and explain to them that's why they have knee pain. And if you work on this... The knee pain will start to dissipate, maybe. Yeah. So, so that you feel you feel that's um, culturally driven. There. Definitely, yeah. yeah. From where yeah. from where they've grown. How they've grown up, and it because there was quite a few different nationalities there, and you could tell, just from how they moved, and their expressions from what what kind of region they were from. Like these were English, these were from Japan or China, and these were from kind of. Check as well. So there's going to be within one company, we can kind of probably all agree that there's going to be cultural differences in terms of their exposure and relationship with ex with exercise. Yeah. And um, interestingly, I think as a as a company, we we get interest from around the around Europe and certainly around the globe of people. Look, I've been told I need to do some exercise, mm-hmm. and maybe they weren't aware of that until they were 30 or 40 and at the end of their career. Um, but at least they come to it at some point and they want to extend their years. Um, so how do you think a company that is so diverse, multinational, and that's a great thing. I love seeing a company yeah. with so many different um, nationalities on stage. I think it's wonderful. How do you think you build that ethos to get everybody on board with that strength and conditioning? Do you think it's got to be the dancers themselves or do you think it needs like a company-wide top-down approach? Yeah, I think it is. It's not, I don't think it's quite a top-down, but almost. So I think if you 
really disseminate that information to the principal dancers. They're going to have influence over the, the directors and the choreos. And then the, the principals will have influence over the other dancers. Mm. But it seems... It's almost, like, it's almost like you want key, you want you almost want social influences, yeah, don't you? It's, I think it's, it's almost like you want the cool the cool group. It's got it has it's to got be to do cool. S and C. Yeah. I mean that's why it's so good in the UK because strength and the gym it's sexy right now. Like they love it. Yeah. But over there it's like the directors are still a bit. Oh, I'm not sure. I wasn't I wasn't brought up on this. I don't think about. It. But the principal mm-hmm. dancers and because they know they need to be on their form at all times. They're the ones who were making most of the notes at the time and they were writing everything down and they were asking the questions. And then everyone was were latching onto that. And they're like, okay, that's a good question. Maybe I need to think about this as well. So I think it's the principal dancers in the companies that need yeah. to, well, not it's not their responsibility, but it's yep. the influence we have over them to have their influence over the others. That's going to help accelerate this. There's a bit of an adage, isn't there, that strength and conditioning coaches that have been around for a bit of time in strength in, in dance will say that it's been a snowball effect. You know, even 20, 30 years ago when there was a sports scientist involved with the dance, it was because they were injured, they were trying to get back on, yeah. and as a result, the person never left their side and continued to do S&C, and they would sort of draw the next person, oh, you know, come on, you should try coming to the gym. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is such a buzzword now. You know, we've got videos out there from uh, big companies doing lots of fantastic um, gym work, sports science work, and, that, and you know, we're, we're able to compare some of the athletic levels of people um, with other sports, which is cool. Mm. Um, nevertheless, in terms of um, potential, you know, risk factors, Jody, um, and, you know, how those injuries perhaps present. I know we talked a lot about injury and um, pain, but do you think there's an element of, um, where do you see performance enhancement coming from? So if a dancer wants to be just better at dancing, from a clinical point of view, what might what might be the silver bullet for that for that person? You know, the, the, we we know that Chris and I go in the gym. We can make them jump higher, but I'm not sure that's what dance. That's the only thing dancers care about. What do you feel like they they want to be better at? What do you feel from your point of view? From my point of view, when I speak to them, I think ultimately they just want to improve their performance. They on stage on stage, um, obviously in class as well, um, and. Which aspect of performance do you think they care? Is it all, I mean, it's all going to be different, but, you know, for example, if you can reel a couple of examples off, like, in terms of, is it their characterisation, or just, is it something like lift the leg higher? Like, do you, or do you just see a, a, such a, of a wide variety of... Um, again, I think it's a, it is very individual. It's a big variety, but I think from speaking to different performers, a lot of it as well does come down to um, psychological um, and... Mm stage fright, I hate to use it, inverted commas, but um, that kind of performance anxiety um, before they go on stage and how to manage that in order to still turn on point, still hit those lines that they need to lit to, um, like, hit the lines, sorry, that they need to hit. So it's about trying to give them um, certain warm-up exercises in order to um, cope with that so they so they feel ready so they feel confident in their physicality of their body which makes them feel mentally ready before they go on stage and do that yeah. um, performance so exercise essentially could be a catalyst for confidence pre pre, pre even pre-performance yeah. you know you 
mobilize you you do some activation in, and again in inverted commas yeah. exercises and you do you ramp warm up and i really like this idea that we have this like um machine the way you select like a vending machine you select exercises to use within your warm-up um but i'm gonna get on to i'm gonna talk about that really triggered subject which is foam rolling Okay, and there's so and I, I, I don't know if people seen like on my Instagram recently. I'm I'm trying to spark a debate, and I feel like I've got people really heads up, and I'm not really casting any opinion, myself, um at this point, but I'm 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 hopefully gonna we're gonna get onto that now. Um, there are those mm-hmm. in the certainly in the physio, community and the strength and conditioning community who will not do it. They think it's a gimmick, and they think it's too short term. What's the point? And then there are people that have come full circle. I'll give a shout out to Dan's, Dan Lonsdale there, yes, if, who's a gymnastics S&C. He was on the podcast most, quite recently, episode three. Um, he believes, he, he has come full circle and he said that, you know, there was a point where he was like, what's the point? And now he's like, you know what, if I can get an edge, I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. Which I think is a great perspective. And he's very honest in saying in nine or ten years, he's really been through all schools of thought on this. And then there are those that are like, I've got to do my foam rolling every day. Chris, where do you stand? Yeah, this is a very good topic. So I've just finished a big essay on this. Because I've never... I used to like foam rolling, so I've done the opposite of that now. I've used to like foam rolling. I thought it was just very effective for me and others. And then I grew away from it. Because it's... what we found is all the research, and there's a lot of research, like lots of research on it, is that if you want to improve range of motion, it works for sure. Maybe acutely, for, but it works. What no one knows is, well, how does it work? The mechanism. The mechanisms. And this is why I wrote 5,000 words on it. Is, okay, let's start talking about how it works, and then we can work around... Long See, story short, this. long story short, what was the final few words of your 5,000 word essay or whatever it was? Um, it, okay. Roughly. <laughs> well, it's, okay, so everyone kind of wants to jump on this, it's a mechanical type thing, where we're changing the structure of the fascia. Let's get real on that for a second, is that really, really possible? You know, we need to it's, take some kind of meat, so, meat hammer to the yeah, car. Yeah, so some of it isn't just... <laughs> Like, in terms of, if you see the word, like, fascia, it breaks down fascial adhesions, you walk away. That's just not happening. It can't break down. But it may be changing from a gel to, or salt to gel-like consistency. It makes it more fluid. That's probably happening. However, what's really happening is the neurology is changing. There's the receptors that are being stimulated by the thermal High pressure. Massage, High, yeah. Are changing, or is a sensory input. This is processed by the, the cortex, the brain, the central nervous system, and then that creates the motor output. That's what's changing the analgesia. That's what's changing the range of motion, really. But because you can't, you can't separate the two. You can't say, okay, it's just physical. Because just doing this, like tapping on my leg, my brain, or the receptors are taking that information in. My brain is determining, is that a threat? And then it creates the motor output. If I have a dysfunction here, if I have a stress factor here, and I... Hits it hard. Gonna, my brain's gonna go. That's a dangerous area. Yeah. Don't do that. Get away from it. So you have restriction in the ankle. So because you want to move away from the pain, and same from the back. So we could have all this going on. Let's just move. It's, it's, that's we're talking about foam rolling. That's fine. 
But this could just be happening all the time. It is 100% it's happening all the so time. So when somebody comes in and their knee towards 15, 14, 15, 14, yeah. 16, 14, it's kind of in response. These changes that we're seeing in numbers and the movement and how somebody feels are just in response to everyday stimulus. Uh, yeah, we, we can't yeah. categorically say it's because you dance like this. No. And I don't. And I really want to move away from. Oh, you know that person's in pain because they 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 roll, or they're that person's in pain because of the way they stand at the bar. I mean, we can't be that. We can't be that way at the bar. Yeah. That's yeah, what we, you have to ask. We can't be that finite. So what? Even though you're talking about foam rolling changing the neurology yeah. or influencing the brain, mm-hmm. let's be you know really be concise there. Um, that could just be happening when you sleep. When you move, when you move in a certain yeah, way. You find these compensation patterns, you'll find when people are particularly stressed, you know, they'll start doing these, these strange habits. You know, if someone's talking to you and they have to rub their face like this, it's their way of calming them down. And foam rolling is just that. It's, it's either working as an anti-stimulus mm. to calm this area down so you can focus, so you can move normally again. Or it's upregulating an undersensitized receptor that isn't working properly like the deep like Puccini corpus calls it's basically it's, it's, too, it's so global this, this whole thing that we it's just massive, yeah, it's, it's, it's a huge what I want to work out though is what we know is going to pain just isn't worthwhile so so, so that swaps me over to Jody mm-hmm. quite beautifully because there's loads of different people foam roll really hard and they use spiky balls and they yeah. get in and yeah. in and in and in where do you stand on massage I know you use it, and I get oh, I yeah. get you in. I, I get you in every single week to come and do it. And if I didn't believe in it somewhat, I wouldn't have bother having a clinic. And I know people like it, and therefore they must like it. They must feel good for some reason. So, through your sports therapy degree, through your clinical knowledge, through your um, ability as a practitioner, what do you think's going on in terms of when you massage to change perceived feel range of motion? What, what are the mechanisms for you that you're focusing on or understand? Um, so, say, for example, someone's struggling lifting their lifting the leg or they feel a little bit of restriction through their hamstring. So, obviously, initially, I would assess, see where they're feeling that restri- restriction, um, would get them moving, and then I would get them moving through that range and also feel up their hamstring to kind of see if there's a point where that muscle like starts to compensate doesn't quite lengthen or get it just feel doesn't feel right um and then obviously yes i would work in with uh, some kind of like warming techniques um and then yeah work into it a little bit but there's a fine line between pressing too hard mm. in in effect of me physically pressing too hard um and the person wanted to like climb off the table that could make the issue worse and, right if, yeah, if somebody has a negative um sensation yeah do you find that that kind of completely nullifies the effect that you wanted from the massage yeah yeah so the the, the aim is relaxation and not yeah. just so if, if somebody so therefore my question is because if we if we put massage and foam roll in the same category for a mm-hmm. second yeah. and I, I believe there are differences there are yeah. massive differences <laughs> but if we put them in the same kind of pressure input mm-hmm. category for a second should we be foam rolling to the same intensity that a massage is, or should we do foam rolling quite intense in in a very intense way? If we're going to do it, what's where do you stand on that? What's your opinion? 
I'm, I'm, I'm really putting you on the spot there. I know, I know, it's, I know it's, it's hard to... Because the two are different. But do you think that people... Basically, my yeah. question is, do you think that yeah. people phone roll or use spiky balls to, in excess? Do you think they do it too hard, basically, to the point where they like, bruise themselves? To be honest, I would say people put less pain on themselves than, than say, a, an external person would. Right. So, I would say they would probably back off of a foam roller in terms of intensity and pressure compared to what I would probably do. Obviously, if they're screaming their head off, I'm obviously not going to press in, but like they might sit on a foam roller and go, ah, that, that's really hurting, and they'll just carry on doing it. Mm. Or go, oh, actually, I'll come off a little bit. Oh, that feels a bit better. So, yeah, I can't I, think... Because I've seen, I've seen you massage yeah. a lot, and I've seen you treat people a lot. And I wouldn't say that you are particularly aggressive when it comes to the methods that you use. But people always seem to walk out feeling great. So do you think that is a testament to the fact that you're not really trying to elicit like, oh, I'm in so much pain? No. And also, I think for dancers, they, they want to work the next day. Like normally they say if you have like a deep tissue sports massage, whatever you want to call it, they kind of say like 48 hours really is the next time to kind of um, exercise or do activity so why would I press in that hard okay no no carry on, oh. carry on. Why, why would I press in that hard in the sense of like killing them and like really hurting them when they can't go on and into class that next day because they still need to perform at their best so I would say if they're going to be using um foam rollers and spiky balls and various things like that the intensity for me i would say for them to back off slightly so that they aren't causing a potential damage let's put it and affecting their performance because they've pushed too hard on that roller or they've like overexerted that specific area so essentially they can do too much they can make it can it can be too much essentially okay so we're gonna take a short break there we're back in just a second really hope you're enjoying the podcast so far this is science and dance podcast episode number five you're here with chris taggart jody coma and me rupert wiltshire um, in the next half of the, the podcast, we focus on some of the questions that have been sent in by some of our subscribers and listeners. So hopefully we'll, uh, we'll be getting to some of your questions today. Thanks very much. Leave some comments below. Let us know what you think as ever. And I hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast. So welcome back. Um, just to recap... We've been talking about foam rolling. We've been talking about pain management. We've been talking about the types of pain that we um, see. We've been talking about a little bit. We've sort of touched a little bit on neurology. We've talked a little bit upon the, the do's and don'ts of massage and foam rolling. And th- that, that's um, going to spin off into some more episodes in the future where we actually get into the, the, the mechanisms behind perhaps what's going on there. And as I said before, there are people that are for and against certain aspects or usage usage of foam rolling i think um i think it plays a role i think it's um certainly a good a good thing to do if it unlocks some potential for somebody and ability to move and that's the reason that we tend to keep some foam rolling practice in we tend to keep some myofascial release practice and some massage going throughout the week 
Um, but to kind of take that a step further now and say, look, we've got all these components to be to practitioners and sports teams, as we know, have a network or of um, or a system whereby all those different disciplines interact on a daily basis. And in an ideal world, I get asked a question quite a lot of the time. How often should I be training? What should I be doing? And that is different for a variety of people. But if we take, for example, the 16 to 19-year-old dancer that is entering full-time training, first of all, and we say, you know, how much supplemental exercise should they be doing? Bearing in mind, they're probably going to be doing four or five classes a day. Where do you sit with that, Chris? Do you think there's... What, what, what would you do with a timetable? Let's ask you that question. So, so purely for, for strength and conditioning, mm. I'd, I'd try and get them training in the gym at least, I'd say between two, maybe four times, depending on their competency level mm-hmm. and their efficiency in the gym. Um, I think anything, anything less than one, you know, once every two weeks or maybe even once a week might not be enough considering they're doing high volume, essentially plyometrics hours of the day. They do need that, that recovery because it is so damaging to the muscular tendon unit. But in the gym, it's, we allow them to strengthen the muscle to allow those tendons to be stiffer in a beneficial way so they can be more reactive and they can recover from these high impacts they do hours on end every day i, th- I think what, yeah i think what you're touching on there is like as well is like some these elements of robustness uh, i think yeah, certainly yeah. where the tendon complex is mm. is concerned because i'm guessing jody a lot of the issues you see do all revolve around soft tissue structures like tendon yeah. ligament don't they so what do you think um with regard let's say they are training twice to three times four maybe four times in some more well-trained uh, scenarios mm. What types of loading would you like to see them doing to try and avoid these overuse stru- issues with those structures? In terms of certain exercises. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. What, what, what would you, what do you normally prescribe people to do if they come in with, say, um, Achilles tendon or uh, FHL tendon issues? Do, what, what are you prescribing there, exercise wise? Um, deload in the sense of partial weight bearing type exercise. Um. And as well, I would also just ensure they're, mo- they're on top of their mobility um, and general kind of functional movement patterns up the chain as well. So say if it is like a foot, ankle, Achilles type issue, mm. um, just ensuring that when they are standing, they're not offloading somehow through the rest of their body um, and just ensuring that up the chain is also working efficiently so it's not that's not part of the potential so it's taking quite that's taking quite a rounded approach to keeping yeah. keeping people moving isn't it yeah. i think we can often say look there's an issue with the ankle um or the foot and then we just target the foot and that can often if you're if you're coming off dance in order to to um sort out an issue mm. then you might want not want to neglect those areas and i think certainly what i see um i would like to try and think i would like to think that we aim to cover the the strength capacity of the ankle and foot whilst we're doing a lot of dance training. So, yeah. a, a, but a lot of the time I find that this training can be um, in addition to mm-hmm. the current workload. 
which might be like adding insult to injury. It might be like chucking petrol on a bonfire. You know, yeah. we we when is we might just be doing more for the sake of doing more, and that might have a worse effect. So, I would like to try and, in my ideal world, tap into substituting some classes for strength training, or at least finding a lighter day on which to do some loading. And then I think there's also discussion around doing loading that doesn't impact the central nervous system or the uh, create as much muscle damage in, in season, if you like. So if we're going four or five classes a day, um, and Chris, I noticed that you on a post fairly recent, a while ago, you were saying, you know what, I think I've neglected an aspect to my training. Mm-hmm. And... I don't think yeah I don't th- I did say uh, we're going to talk about what that is in a second but like I don't think you did because you were probably doing some of it and you didn't just think about mm. that that's what it was but I'm trying to build get people involved with like doing a lot more isometric loading in a variety of positions and certainly Jody you've yeah. been a fan of that when we've looked at rehab scenarios yeah. but do you think there's a place for that in performance isometric and mm, yeah, oh, yeah just yeah, isometric sure. loading I mean isometric and eccentric training methodologies they are we know they're important and the more evidence is coming out that they're even more important than we realized because it it's all about motor unit recruitment when we're when we're training that and eccentric and isometric allow you to recruit more motor units and it creates that that adaptation where you are able to get more motor units without necessarily increasing the muscle size and the best thing with the isometric stuff is you get stronger in that exact range you're training in. No other range. And that's where I would have made that post where I haven't done any isometric. So it was because I was rehabbing myself from an injury from a squat where I basically had too heavy weight and just torpedoed and tried to bounce out of it. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. So I've in that process, I neglected my entire eccentric Thing. training fibers yeah. Yeah. and then got stuck on the isometric because it was too heavy so I couldn't concentric yes. the shortening so a power, a power lifter might say that you've just got you've got a, a sticking point there and, yeah, and you've exactly. literally yeah. just got no, no I haven't basically point. got the raw force to yeah, push through and, and I think that that's a, such a, a, an interesting anecdote is that in the sense that dancers do rocket and torpedo into certain positions yeah. and do they therefore have the eccentric or isometric capacity to recover for some t- yeah. from such positions then you go and do that 15 times over yeah 20 50, 30 okay. more let's go 100 times over and actually we've got an issue potential yeah. issue there and just to kind of bring up people up to speed is we, we are isometric training's taken a bit of a twist and a turn i i, I think um there's lots of top track and field coaches lots of top strength and conditioning coaches um around the world that use isometrics to either potentiate a jump or potentiate other movement end range isometrics have been kind of marketed as uh, and trademarked and actually by a variety of different companies and actually all they are is just end range yeah. strength training yeah. which could have a really great impact on as you say range of motion maybe some injury prevention or certainly some help with loading into ranges that are more at risk should mm. i say so you know those long hamstring lengths those long glute lengths certainly the glute we know the glute tendon can be uh, a risk at risk for, yeah. for dancers sometimes and then I think what we've moved away from is that isometrics aren't necessarily truly isometric in the sense that the muscle is continually continually contracting and actually what might be happening is yes we see them the the, the total length of the quadriceps over the patella 
staying the same, but actually the muscle's contracting and the tendon is elongating. So, and, and some people are starting to call them like extreme slows because when we look at these exercises, they're actually, the time under tension is large. Mm. So there's lots of force. And in terms of tendon training and improving the robustness of tendons, we can certainly see that there's the, the, these tendons are starting to like really get pulled on with these isometrics. And that's why people have good, a good experience with them for pain. They can really get rid of pain mm. initially. And also a long-term training benefit. I know people will say that they just don't feel like they've done a workout and because they've just been holding a split squat or holding a squat. But I actually, I think that's got great implications yeah, for dancers yeah. because what, what we've been talking about is they're overloaded, they're overused, they're overworked. Mm -hmm. But we can actually do strength training that doesn't involve a change in muscle length yeah. and therefore muscle damage. So what you're coming, you know, people come into the clinic to see you, you Jodie. How many people come in for you and it's actually doms? Well, unless they've had like a proper heavy, heavy workout, like... Yeah, I mean every every movement that anyone does, you you're creating DOMS, mm. but it just depends on how much you physically exert on that, whether mm. it causes a lot of. And do you think there's an an inability to to identify between what's like DOMS and what's like really awful pain? Do you think there's uh, do you think people can tell? Do you think there's a, people know the difference between you know I've hurt myself and. I've got DOMS. Well, there's a very fine a very fine line with um, in the research as well that actually looks at what's DOMS and what's a grade one muscle tear. Oh wow! Um, so it's trying. Basically, there's certain articles that look at like it's it's actually more eccentric though to create that DOMS effect quicker. Yeah. Um, and then, but it, obviously ethically, it's quite hard. Um, to then to just tear the muscle like you can't yeah. um, let's not do that one no <laughs> but they they talk about the recovery of an intense DOMS in relation to the a grade one muscle tear recovery phase um, and that inflammatory response because when you break down muscle essentially you've yeah. got micro tears yeah. so you know that's where where people get this cumulative build up in soreness over yeah. the course of a week is when they're jumping about doing 300 jumps a day mm -hmm we are creating muscle damage yeah. in its entirety. And I think um, it's a, it's a, just a, we could go into so much depth on this topic, mm. but I, I think, Chris, you've alluded to it certainly, and I, we use it certainly in rehab, Jody. We could probably strength train people in a variety of positions without moving, essentially either an overcoming isometric where you're pushing against something or a yielding isometric where you're holding a position. And we've been toying around, toying around. I'm sure we're going to have a really solid strength block of doing, yeah, we'll do muscular endurance and that's important. And we'll do some, some lots of mobility work. And we will do a lot of movement, but we will also have pick a solid base of isometric exercises like a pin squat, pin rise, um, a split squat hold, and a, and a few other ones for the hamstring that target flexibility and overall force production capability. And then I think there's tendon health to be had in there as well. So I, I think if people are going to add in exercise to their current dance regime, personally, I would be saying do some ISOs. Yeah, <laughs> I think you, you, you're spot on with that. Because I think, especially in dance as well, is that it's the, it's the deep tendons that are doing all the work and our muscles just allow that tendon to be more efficient. Yeah, I mean, how many tendons do you have in your body? Well, like, for every muscle, there's tendons, yeah. right? So, yeah. And it's easy to forget that's, that. That's, that's where the potentiation's coming from. And our muscles, when we're training in that isometric field, 
is like you said, getting that tension so that we, the more efficient we get that tendon, the better the, the performance will be and then recovery from that because uh, they're less likely to degrade that tendon. You know, we used to, I, I think we used to think that like, like take the Nordic hamstring curl for, for example, like yeah, that, the Nordic bit, drop, yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it was used against like injury prevention and you know, it can mitigate the risk of injury preventions to hamstrings, but it was kind of the only exercise being used mm. And you could also do an isometric version of the same yeah, thing yeah, yeah. and work your way down the Nordic drop. Yeah. And maybe that's got exactly the same effect. And you, you know, the, one of the issues they had with the eccentric Nordic drop was players in football were saying, I'm sore the next day. Now, I know a football player doesn't want to play with soreness. Mm. A dancer doesn't want to dance with mm-hmm. soreness. I think there's going to be an initial adaptation familiarization period with most exercises where there's an element of oh, yeah, yeah. soreness initially. But if you, you don't want that week on week, in the day in, day out. So when you're advising people, even, even general athletes, what a good workout and a bad workout is, I don't want people to necessarily feel the burden. People mm. come to me and say, you know, oh, I felt like I had such a good workout because I'm absolutely fried. Yeah. And I'm like, no, like it could have been mm-hmm. so much more effective. Do you see do you see dancers gravitating more towards yeah I got a good workout or do you think that they can get a little bit more bang for the buck by maybe doing less and focusing more on more intensity or more targeted exercise what do you think Jodie? I mean you... I think I think more the latter I think um especially some of the like the dancers I see in clinic um both professional and and training like in colleges their time is limited and some of them are working, some of them are um, trying to fit in other things around their training and their, their shows and everything. And it's just trying to manage their time better. So I would say most of the time, a lot of them prefer a shorter, more intense, not, not more intense is the wrong kind of word, but um, to not burn them out basically. Not um, creating too much overload yeah, within in one session. Yeah, a period of time. Mm. Um, just to manage their load of what they're doing yeah because I've had I've had some I've I've coached even professional dancers and uh, said the same thing and they've gone to like boxer size Mm. before coming into the S&C suite or they've gone to a spin class first thing in the morning I'm like oh no like (laughs) you know it's great that you're so keen but we could do this let me let me just help you with how we're going to structure this Mm. and I think and that's a great uh, a great point you mentioned there's time management and structure so let's take another example before we before we get to run out of time the professional we've got many different types of professional dancer we've got company dancers we've got freelance dancers we've got but i think the majority of people that get send questions in and we're going to touch on some questions from people in a second there's a lot of freelance dancers out there and a lot of the time we talk about company dancers we talk about people in shows but for the freelance dancers who are perhaps going and taking a couple of classes a day and trying to manage their time they've got the potential to even to train that a little bit harder actually and and i don't think the gym is a replacement for practice dance practice at all um but they kind of asked me you know what how should i be training should i be doing like this power lifting type thing or should i be doing dance specific type thing chris what do you think what's your opinion on kind of training outside of the studio outside of a ballet company or school setting and if you're trying to be healthy robust athletic dancer where do you start it depends on your experience within strength training but general general training getting focusing on movement competency working a push a pull a hinge a squat a single leg um 
and focusing on that, and you, you will see a general increase. Going straight into the very super specific stuff, you're not really going to see the benefit, A, because you're going to be doing it in class anyway. And then you won't know the, the particulars of doing this very fine, minutiae, fine control without someone watching you or coaching you through it. Same goes with the hinge and the squat. You need someone to, to get you into that right position, but focusing on those main aspects, push-pull, hinge, squat. So just general work. force production capability. Yeah, you get better at producing force. You will improve performance because you're moving quality because that's everything that is that is the most... That's where we're talking about muscular endurance and things yeah. like that. You want to be able to do things without inducing fatigue. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And then it's the less is more approach. We want to get you, we want you to achieve adaptation with as little effort as possible because we don't want to fatigue you. I remember you saying this to me two years ago, any coach can tire someone out. That's not what you want. You want someone to get you that adaptation without you... No, it's CrossFit, right? Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. It's great. I, I shouldn't, I'm not going to slam CrossFit. I'm not going to slam CrossFit. <laughs> yeah, it's a whole different debate, that is. Um, but it's, it's going, if you're a beginner, going at it general and learning how the human body moves and then getting your own intuition, your experience, and go, okay, how can this relate to dance? How can I change this position to make it more dance focused? And it's not a case of just going to the gym picking up a weight either. Oh. You can develop movement competency by progressively changing, making movement more difficult. Yeah, there's, I'm, what I'm really, really interested in at the minute is, is controlled articulated rotations, cars, where you're, you're just moving a joint through its full range of motion, but with such intention, it becomes a, 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 almost an isometric exercise, really, really slow. And you're just moving through. Is that specific or general? It's, it should be general, but it's difficult to become specific in that I sense. think it is general, and I agree with you. I think what's nice about stuff like controlled articulated rotations or the, 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 the dare I say, the functional range conditioning yeah, stuff, yeah. which is just end range isometrics yeah. and movement, yeah. let's be clear. It's, it's just you movement, don't have to yeah. necessarily put a yeah. patent on that. You're learning how your joint moves in that socket. It's applicable to dancers, and they can definitely see the, the, see the line drawn between rotations like that and articulations of the joints like yeah. that, end range isometrics and dance. They can certainly see that, and that comes into fine control. So mm. then I'm thinking, well, if that's kind of the specific stuff that they want... It, kind of fulfills all the needs they could have a very general strength program yeah, yeah. and then they could have a movement quality program yeah. and the two don't have to necessarily be and in the it same it bridges session. the gap so well into dance then you have your fine control and then you realize oh i'm i'm doing this you have, your general, doing devil play. You have, your, you have your general loading yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. i really like that that's a good uh, i think that's advice i've got a couple of questions here before we finish if that's okay um eleanor bristow asked the best length of time to stretch for and that may seem like a really <laughs> ambiguous question. It's a great question because yeah. there's a lot of stretching research out there and there's a lot of stretch con- misconceptions, I guess. Um, I mean, I'll be honest, we don't do any extreme stretching here, um, mainly because most people have developed a great range of motion by 16, but we probably get m- as much bang for, you know, from our, for our buck as we can from kind of 30 seconds to a minute. But Jodie, where do you sit on the whole stretching thing? Um, I think as well, it depends on whether you're going into your dynamic or you're going into your static type stretches. Um, and also, I would say where you're actually stretching on the body mm. um, and what you're actually trying to achieve from it, to be fair. I tend to say 10 to 20 seconds, personally. Um, 
and then come out of it, have a little bit of a breather, gently go back into okay. it. Okay, so, you, you, so you're kind of like gently getting um, into that the stretch tolerance there a little yes. bit. You want people yeah. to have a, com- a good relationship yeah. with a stretch. Yeah, mm, I and like then that. come out of it and then go back into it. And each time, obviously, you will be able to get a little bit further, mm. but you're never working into a, a painful stretch it's mm. to that point. So yeah, that's where I go. <laughs> similar topic um I'll, i don't know who this person is but they their instagram handle is coldwell underscore silver um is it better for dancers who need to improve their flexibility to stretch before or after working out chris i hate stretching anyway but we know stretching before is going to affect performance negatively but what if they need to show off flexibility as a dancer that's always the trick isn't it we know yes I'm agree with you here I won't give my my opinion just yet but we know that strength stretching static stretching prior to athletic movement decreases force production capabilities I think we can agree on that where do you go from there it's it's what they want to achieve from from stretching anyway. I mean, what what is the question? What the question that? exactly is: Is it better for dancers that need to improve flexibility to stretch before they work out, or dance, or after okay. they work out? Well, after for sure. Beforehand, you really should work on mobility and working through the joint because you want blood flow. You want the synovial fluid to oil up that joint. That's that's going to improve your performance that way. Stretching afterwards, now the muscles are in a better state to to create long-lasting results and then you can then flush more blood to that area long-lasting results i think i've got a stretching philosophy along those lines as well which is if you're having to stretch before you dance to achieve the flexibility you desire you've not done enough lot stretching or mobility work long term yeah so if you're trying to get something magical out of your flexibility today for your performance today you've you've missed the belt I like that a lot Yeah. but what you're doing is you're stretching now today for four weeks time or tomorrow or the day after that you know it's it's a a cumulative build up of of, of stretching we're talking about stretching a lot here Um, Jodie this is kind of one for you I guess Um, how do you advise dancers who have greater or or, or excessive mobility in their joints so like hypermobility type syndromes and things like that what's your advice to people like that have got extreme hypermobility or global hypermobility should I say they depending on the SS that they want to achieve in class if they're going to work into it they need to strengthen that range okay so you're saying that dancers who have let's say hyperextension at the elbow if they're doing press ups or floor work and contemporary they should really strengthen into that fullest range they need to know how to control it mm. locking out is a completely different ball game so they Obviously, if they're getting to that, say, a press-up and they're pushing up and they're having, they reach that end point where their arms will just lock into hyperextension, I don't think they should be going into that because they're not controlling that movement. It's like full-on locking But if they, were to, if they had the capability to get there through control, then that's... I, yeah, I would say they that's can fine. control into it. Okay, that's a, yeah. that's a, that's a well-advised answer. Um, get it. We were kind of touching on this. Like, I guess, getting back in shape after several months break where'd you start maybe due to maybe due to injury but let's not talk about the injury rehab but just generally um this is a question from fabia she says getting but how do i get back in shape what's the best how do i start like daily training for getting back in shape after several months break well 
Um, well, so what, give me one thing that you would do. Well, I'll, I'll give you kind of my ethos on that. Um, and this isn't just specific for dancers, this is for anyone who, who yeah. has taken yeah. this break. That's why I'm asking you, because um, you've, you've probably come across people yeah. in your gym that... There's, there's, there's two pillars. There's nutrition and there's exercise. And these two pillars are on a bedrock of sleep. And if you need to nail all those three aspects before you can really start being where you may have been seven or odd months ago, because your entire body has changed. So if you're taking you know, four to six months off from training intensely, your whole metabolism has changed because it's such a, in dance as well now, it's such a, a damaging and central nervous system frying uh, movement skill and exercise. You've now gone out of that into a normal state, into a normal person metabolism. So your nutrition has to change to fit what it used to be. Because you would have adapted to a, a more normal routine. So we have to, you have to tread with caution. You can't necessarily just do what you did before and yeah, go back yeah, to the way. I love that. I love that pillars on a bedrock of sleep. Yeah, it's great. I tell, me about the, tell, tell us about the sleep thing though, you know, because I, 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 somebody coming back after several months might be like, just like, you know what, I've got to do, 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 do. Yeah, do. yeah, yeah. So, so with, I mean, start quite early if it's, you know, in a company that have maybe a ballet class in the morning and then training all day. And then while you've been off, you might not have needed to, to get up that early. So you're, you may have changed your sleep pattern, which is a dangerous thing to do. And sleep is, we know how important sleep is, but it's even more important than that. It's just so, so vital because it's how we get all our processing done. It's how we recover and feedback from the day or we would go over the mistakes you made and learn from it. And if we're not getting deep sleep, I and mean, if we're focusing on the stuff, oh no, I need, I need this sleep, then you're not recovering properly, so it's having... And if you can't have that sleep, your nutrition's not going to go up. You can eat all the right stuff, but if your processes, your deep automatic processes, aren't working properly because you're not sleeping, you're not going to have the bioavailability. The bioavailability of the food you're eating is going to decrease because your body isn't working. It's in a stress state. And then with that exercise as well, if you're not sleeping well, if you're not recovering, all that stress you put onto your system from training you're not going to be able to recover. You're not going to be able to adapt. So you end up in this chronically stressed, chronically inflamed Yeah, it's important to remember when you're training, you're breaking down the system, right? That's it. Yeah. You break, in the gym, you break it down. You recover it from nutrition. And then you are able to have the most efficient nutrition and digestive state from sleep. Because that's it. That's the most optimum rest and digest. Is rest, is sleeping. It's mm. where everything changes. Well, that's, that's, that's such a great answer. I mean, I, I think that's such a great way to, uh, to, to kind of fill it. And the best <laughs> advice I ever got I think was I wasn't even from somebody in our field. It was from a a, a MacBook technician at Apple. Great. <laughs> and he told me off because he said, um, you know, I went in to have my battery changed, and he was like, you know what, you you run this battery down really really quickly. And I was like, have I? He's like, well, do you ever turn it off? And I'm like, what do you mean? It was like I just shut the lid. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I was like, I just yeah. shut the lid. He's like, well, would you would you when you get out of your car at home, would you just leave it running and go to bed? I was like, oh no, you've got a point. He was like, well, when you, at the end of the day, do you kind of like keep the telly on and keep one eye open whilst you're trying to sleep? Yeah. He's like, that's what you're doing to your MacBook. And that's why the battery's done four years before it should be. Yeah. So I thought that, you know, that's really. I point, love that. It's really so poignant. I got my best ever <laughs> sport and exercise science help that. from an app, a MacBook it's technician. It's so true. And an even, Apple genius guy. I mean, yeah. Because it comes into sleep quality. Because you might be sleeping, you know, you go to bed at. 9 p.m. 
you wake up at say six seven a.m. I was terrible at maths or something. Nine hours sleep. Nine hours sleep. That's like brilliant. But what if that sleep quality is really poor? What if you just shut the lid? You're just closing your eyes, but you're not entering REM sleep. You're not deep sleeping, which I've realised that's what I'm doing. You've just shut the lid on the MacBook for a period of time. You're not. You're not in a good quality sleep. Like the room isn't dark. No, there's noise. You can't focus. You can't. You've got this garbage going on your head. You're so cluttered. Mm. Your eyes are closed, so you're sleeping. But so turn your phones off earlier. Read a book. Phones read. read garbage. Just write everything down that's on your mind. Don't go to sleep with stuff on your mind. Write yeah. it out. Blurt it out. Just brain fire out, so you can just rest, digest, and just and you quality of sleep will improve so so much. And I guess so. That's great. I mean, Chris, you've given us a, that was a fantastic answer to our final question to finish there. I mean, let's just put, to wrap it up. Um, let's Jody, Chris, tell us kind of, and the listeners kind of what you're up to at the moment, what you're going to focus on in the next year, where people can find you on Twitter, Instagram. Jody, what are you, where are you at, at the moment? What are you about to do kind of in the next year and where can people get in touch with you if they wanted to? Yeah, so um, my Instagram handle is Shaw underscore therapy. Um, I'm about to, in September, start year two, final year of uh, my performing arts medicine uh, masters, which I'm so excited for. Um, and I'm just looking forward to working with more students, working with more professionals, and nail down some titles, prospective like dissertation ideas, and work really hard to put more kind of research and robust research out there for. It's great that you know you're practitioner and researcher doing both at the same time. That's re- uh, that's really really fantastic, and I think that that helps the field massively. Be... Mm. Chris, what are you up to? So I'm in the, the end stages of my masters in strength conditioning. Onto the dissertation stuff now, which we're going to look at at the, the, at the dance school here. And we're going to start tackling the answers of this foam rolling debate and what can we do instead of it and if the results are, are worthwhile to continue. And doing on, it. On, on the gram? On the gram, where, I, where? I am tag fit. Everywhere. Not as, uh, as lively on it as I should be. Yeah, I, I, I do want you to be more like know, you've, you've obviously says. got some great. Um, I mean, Jody starts putting started putting a lot more of her snippets out yeah, there, bits of research, yeah. and that's good from a, from that clinical or therapy point and therapy point of view. But we've got to have some of your wisdom too. Yeah. I feel. I think. Yeah, I think. Rest the, and digest being one of them. <laughs> but you, but you, you know, you work in in a gym, uh-huh. and there's um, you see all types of people. Yeah. And I guess a limitation of myself is that I don't. Mm-hmm. see all types of people and I think that adds a, such a great dimension to our world of um, dance science because you look at it from a different perspective and I think that's important yeah, sometimes it's, so it's post more so people can get in touch with you and yeah. you know Chris you write some you write some nutrition programs as well don't that's you that's right so, yeah yeah I'm heavy on the nutrition uh, I help a lot of people out with it in just terms of consulting um, and just clearing up a lot of the fluff that's out there it's 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 saddening how often people come to me with this absurd myth that I thought died out years ago. And, yeah, it, it puts into perspective of how it needs, everyone needs to have a good knowledge of it, and I'm more than happy to. We've not talked about nutrition today, but I think oh, we're, no, we're going to get you on a future episode where old, we just talk about nutrition. Old, old. So if you want, if you need some treatment and you're in the Northwest, Shaw, Shaw Therapy or Jody, uh, how do you pronounce your surname again, Jody? I'm, uh, coma. I'm coma. like the actress, but... Oh, right. Yes, of course. Yeah. Jodie Comer. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. 
<laughs> so yeah, if you're in the northwest and you want some treatment, you can get in touch with Jody through Shore Therapy. And if you want some online nutrition advice or programming consulting, mm-hmm. at TagFit on Instagram. Yeah. And as ever, thank you very much to both of you. It's been fantastic. Um, we're going to do some more Q and A sessions in the future, and I think every kind of maybe fifth episode that we do might be something along these lines where we kind of take in some of the listeners questions like we've just done there and spit them out rather than just being a discussion between the three of us because people might get bored of hearing well they certainly get bored of hearing me i'm i'm, I'm not on his toes yeah but anyway if you can't uh, wait to listen back to this if you'd like to hear more if you'd like to hear more from jody and chris then uh, leave us a comment underneath i hope you've enjoyed this episode and we will see you soon